So, Julian, do you mind uh, coming forward? I've managed to download his um, CV off his uh, church website, so I've got a few uh, facts about you already to embarrass you with. Um, I think one thing we have in common is we were both born in the same year, so there we go, 1964, great year. Um, After that, I think... um, we don't have so much in common. I didn't read English at New College, Oxford, um, and didn't serve on the CU Executive Committee. Um, you went into the printing industry, printing and publishing, an interesting yeah. time. Yeah. Um, worked for Robert Maxwell. And just, um, just around here, actually, and, too. Uh, really? Okay. Yeah, Aylesbury and then Oxford. Very well. So well come of, back to your... Uh, yeah, familiar territory. Your stomping yeah. ground. Um, what was it like as a Christian, working in an industry like that, going through all sorts of change? And uh, uh, how, how, how was that part of your life? Well, it so, seems a long time ago. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I went from being in CUs and uh, that kind of life, with lots of Christians around, to this printing factory with 700 people and I think two other Christians and one other graduate... So it was just the most extraordinary change. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I necessarily coped very well, actually, in terms of my own spiritual life then. I think I rather... I, I, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> in lots of ways, I look back and think I could have done a lot better as a Christian in that yes, environment. Yeah. But it was all change, and it certainly was. And it was a bizarre and extraordinary environment of the Maxwell Group. Yeah. So, cool. yeah. I only had two, year, two years and a bit with it. Yeah. It's obviously helped you understand the pressures that some of your congregation will be under in their, their particular um, lines of, of work. Oh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you ended up um, in ministry. You trained in the, in the US. How, yeah. did, how did that calling for you into ministry happen? Uh, I was asked to join the staff of our church in Nottingham, Cornerstone Church, mm-hmm. to be church manager and to do some preaching and pastoral work. Um, <clears throat> the managerial side went well, but I could see that wasn't what I wanted to do long term. Mm-hmm. The preaching and pastoral work seemed to flourish in a small way, and they encouraged me. And then I mm-hmm. had a very marked and sobering call when I, the, the sinful side of me was thinking, this is going to be hard, and you know, I'm not going to do well in worldly terms if I go into this. And I just remember being struck by, by the parable of the talents, actually. Right. Yeah. And just thinking... If, if I do have some sort of gifting and calling uh, to serve the Lord as a Christian leader and be paid for it and preach and pastor people, and I don't do it, I will not be able to look Christ in the eye at the end of time. Mm-hmm. I just thought, I've got to do it. I, I cannot face the thought of meeting him and just not being able to look him in the eye. Yeah. Like yeah. That. So that, yeah. that's not how everyone's called work. There are positive sides to it as well, but that, that was the heart yeah. of it at yeah. that moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, tell us about your family. Um, yes, I'm married to Debbie, who's a community dentist dealing with special needs patients in Suffolk. Uh, we have three children. Uh, Robin, who actually is um, at Trinity Church, so obviously if you know him, he's doing relay in Oxford this okay. year. Right. And then a, a daughter who's studying in Durham and a younger one still at home. Right, great. Mm. And you, your interests, you say you enjoy walking with your border collie dog, painting with oils, favourite political biographies, an opera. And you've just... Um, favourite political biography? Do you have a favourite? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's usually the one you've just read. I, I've read uh, Charles Moore's uh, couple of volumes on Margaret Thatcher, and I think that's a very well-written political biography. Um, I like Roy Jenkins on Gladstone as well. Right. Okay. I read that for a bit. Now, you've written a couple of books yourself, um, which are out um, outside yeah. for anybody who wants to um, uh, purchase one of those. Maximum Life, um, All for the Glory of God, and Idols, God's Battle for Our Hearts. Where did this um, interest in the um, 
the battle for our hearts, I suppose, come from for, for you, and uh, um, the fact you spent time uh, looking into that, studying it, and writing on it. Um, how did that, that come about? I remember listening to a sermon by a great American Reformed Baptist preacher, Al Martin. This was donkey's years ago, must have been 85, 86, on Proverbs 4.23, above all things keep your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. And it really struck me that what goes on deep within affects everything else. Um, then when I got into ministry, I realized that my preaching teaching needed to reflect that. And it wasn't just to uh, instruct the mind uh, or to kind of exhort people into doing things, but we needed to deal with the wiring inside. Um, so the interest in idols came from that as well, because I think idols of the heart are about uh, where we think our uh, needs are going to be met, where our goals in life are going to come from, what we should serve, what we should love, what we should trust. Um, and just to kind of explore all of that. Um, and I guess that was always a part of my own ongoing walk with the Lord discipleship from when I started to think about these things. But then I had a, a, a difficult time in 2006. Um, previous generation would have called it a nervous breakdown. Our generation, the doctor described it as being off work with a mixture of uh, stress, anxiety, and depression. Um, and there was a sort of vaguely clinical aspect to it. I was on drugs and medication and so on. But a lot of it was a kind of disordering inside where idols had uh, got hold of me, I think, in unhelpful ways. Many of them connected with ministry. They're not exclusively so. And following from that has come quite a long period of internal examination, perhaps excessive at times, and that's always a danger. Um, just in trying to understand myself, my desires, my drives, where they've come from, where they can go, and how they can be focused properly on Christ, and how Christ uh, is my great desire and my great treasure. And so from that, I suppose, the Idols book and some, some sermons at Eden came. And it's an ongoing feature of uh, how we, we talk about things in the church. It's become part of the discourse of the church, really, and maybe it's not uncommon. But um, if you say to someone in a pastoral situation, so could, could there be an idol here? They'll know what I mean, and we've instantly got a kind of language for, for exploring what's going on. Great. Well, let me pray for you now. We look forward to your ministry today. Father God, we do thank you for Julian. Thank you for... Uh, his path to faith, the way you've brought him to faith. Thank you for calling him into ministry and putting that desire in his heart to use the gifts that you have given him to serve you so that when he faces you on that judgment day, you will be able to say to him, well done, my faithful servant. Thank you for bringing him through those tough times, allowing him to use those for the benefit of others as you've helped him to see his own heart as you've helped him to experience your your grace through those times that he's now a better minister for it mm. so we do pray for his ministry to us today that uh, you would bless us through him so help him as he opens your word up now in jesus name amen amen thank you well it's great to be here with you today Last time I was here in this building for Magdalen Road Day Away, I think maybe one or two of you were here. The uh, extension hadn't been done. It's just, uh, just fantastic, isn't it? Um, 
And I, we, we've only joined the FIC in the last few years at Eden. It's been such a blessing to us and a sense of connection with uh, other churches in Cambridge and to come to a group like you. I just think it's wonderful. The Lord really is doing some special things there. And overall, in, in lots of ways in our country, it's a day of small things compared with uh, other countries and other times. But special small things are happening and the national and regional uh, growth and intensification fellowship within FIEC is, in my view, uh, really one of those, and I give thanks for it, and so lovely to share with you today. It'd be great if you could turn your Bibles to Isaiah 57. I hope I've got this right. I'm always slightly nervous of wearing these things because um, <clears throat> I've no cartilage in my ears, which my wife, who has quite rigid ears, thinks is hilarious, and she sort of flaps them like this. And I always worry that my rather floppy ears will mean that something kind of comes loose uh, if I get uh, too carried away. But actually, this seems fairly uh, well there. But if, if you see things flapping around, it's because I've, I've got these uh, pathetic, pathetic ears with no cartilage in them. Okay, Isaiah 57 and verse 15. This is, um, this, this verse is tucked away, but is a really important verse in the book of Isaiah and in maybe in the whole of Scripture. Let's hear what God says. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It seems to me this is a summary of Isaiah's own experience. He generalizes from his own experience to all, believe, <coughs> to all believers. And there are a number of different things going on in the book of Isaiah. And one of the kind of minor aspects of the book of Isaiah <clears throat> is tracing Isaiah's own prophetic consciousness and role as a leader for God's Old Testament church. A leader in the sense of a, speaking with a prophetic voice to the Old Testament church, which is highly resistant to him. When you come to chapters uh, 40 through to 55, there's the servant figure, and there's this big debate who the servant figure is. And it seems to me that uh, while the fulfillment of the servant figure uh, is very much the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of time, there are elements of Isaiah which are close to what's said of the servant. And of course, we are all God's servants as leaders too. This speaks to us in our role as leaders as well as our identity as disciples of Christ. And it speaks to us about the heart of the leader, which is what Andy asked me to speak on today. And I've tried to summarize this <clears throat> with that heading that you'll see on the pink sheets. 
the heart of a Christian leader must be a broken heart. Now, that phrase, broken heart, immediately um, you start to think of people who've had miserable Valentine's Days. That's not what we mean by it. Though it could involve that, but uh, that's not quite where we're going. And we'll come on to what that means in a moment. The heart of a leader must be a broken heart which Christ indwells and renews. I'm so pleased Andy's chosen this theme of the heart of the leader. Uh, It's very easy for uh, a day like this to be merely focused on equipping us with information and knowledge and skills and how-to. And I wouldn't disparage any of that for a moment. There's all sorts of things we can learn that are very useful for us in equipping us to be good leaders in God's church in whatever role God has given us. But if the heart is not right, all the skilling up in the world really doesn't do the work. And if the heart is right, even if our skills are deficient or application of them varies in how how thoroughly we can carry them through, if the heart is right, almost invariably something of that heart will be conveyed to other people, not simply in the formal bits of ministry that we're doing, but also just in our manner with them, our whole being. And we will have blessed them and drawn them closer to God. And the emphasis in this verse is where God lives. Where God lives. And you can see that he lives in these two places. Up and down. Not in between. Up and down. And the down is with the people who are broken and who are contrite and who are smashed. And immediately we have the gospel in a nutshell, of course. And immediately the values of this world are completely reversed because our assumption is that God is with the happy, smiley people, that God is with the successful people, that God really likes to be with intelligent people or people who've got it together, people who, morally speaking, outshine and outclass others. And that anyone who feels that they're broken and conflicted and not up to much really hasn't got a chance. I mean, they may get a few crumbs off the table, but the people God is dining with are the successful ones. Because that is not the gospel. But in our attitude to leadership, often we're tempted to think that's how it is. And even in a leader's day like this, what do we all do in this kind of environment, as well as being uh, as friendly as we can be, we start comparing ourselves with other people. I mean, I'll be doing it as well. It always happens. It always happens at leaders' conferences. People, you'll be comparing your church with other people and uh, wondering whether you're better than them in some way or whether maybe they are better than you. And in all sorts of ways, we compare giftings and uh, uh, blessings and, uh, and all sorts of things. And we assume that the standards of this world are the ones that determine where God's going to be. And this completely blows it away. The first thing that Isaiah says about, about this is where God dwells essentially, if we can put it like that. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. And it seems to me Isaiah is remembering as he hears God that astonishing seminal experience in the temple right at the beginning of his ministry when suddenly the 
curtains parted and he saw something that I'm not sure anyone else saw, certainly in the Old Testament, in quite the way that he did. That vision of the height and the holiness of God. To think of the, the words that he used, the height is an attempt to use the dimensions that we can think about to express the greatness and the infinity of God. Now, in his day, he did it with the comparison of the temple, which was a big space, and the, the train, just the very end, almost the hem or the end of the robe of, of the Lord, filled that entire space. That was his attempt just to say how vast God is. It would be legitimate for us to draw on what we know of the vastness of the universe and then realize that the, the whole of the universe is just so, so minute compared with the vastness of God. And of course, height speaks of greatness. We lift it up far above everything which is finite, far above this world and this universe. And then there's something else added, and this blows our minds. It says he lives forever here. Um, in, in the NIV, I think the ESV has, who dwells in eternity or lives in eternity. And as soon as the word eternity is mentioned, my mind just starts racing and then freezes and, and kind of seizes up. Because I'm a creature in time, and even to start thinking about eternity, I don't have the equipment to do that. But what I do know is that it means God is not in time. God is outside of time. And God is not constrained by time. And God himself does not change. Again, my mind's blown because everything around me changes. I change. I change almost every day. I go backwards and forwards and then there are other things that are more linear and we are all like that. Did you know that you have never had an adequate thought representing adequately, properly, the greatness of God and nor have I? Our very best thoughts of the height and the holiness and the glory and the infinity of God are, are like children trying to describe some mathematical equation. We just can't do it. He is so vastly above even our best and our fullest thoughts of him. And of course, he is holy. That's the other word we need to know his name is holy. His very identity, as it's revealed to us, is pure and vastly above us, vastly different from us. Now, Isaiah had a vision of God, and he saw God like that, and what did he do? He was utterly terrified, utterly terrified by it. I live in a high and holy place, says the Lord through Isaiah, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. <clears throat> that word contrite is the way that 
just about all the modern English translations and all, just about all of them actually in the stream of translation history that goes back to the authorised version translate that word. But I've done a bit of work on this and I, I think it's almost entirely misleading. When the AV writers wrote, that English word had a different connotation from what it has today. The word contrite today suggests that we're sorry for something. And that's not an inappropriate thought here. It's just not what that word means. And you know how you burrow around with something and you come up with a conclusion that no one else has thought of and you think, well, you must be wrong because no one else has got it and all the translations are against you. So I, I checked it out with someone in Cambridge, Pete Williams, who's a great Hebrew scholar and is actually on the committee of the ESV. So he kind of knows what he's doing. And he checked it out and he said, no, you're right. And he filled in some of what I've just given. Actually, what the word means... This is from another Hebrew scholar. Is crushed, pulverized, and shattered. And that's what it meant in the 17th century. It's not what contrite means today. It means to be broken. The words used elsewhere in the Old Testament for dust are something that's been ground down to bits. The idea of crushing, of being fragmented by the application of force. That's what that word contrite means. That was what Isaiah's experience in the temple. Do you remember he said, uh, woe to me, uh, I'm undone. And that undone, it's not the same word. Uh, I kind of would almost say unfortunately, but of course the word of God is, uh, is perfect, so I mustn't say that. Um, but it would be kind of neat, wouldn't it? I kind of like that. But conceptually, it's very similar. I'm undone. Seeing the holiness of God just seemed like a set of knives tearing him to pieces because he realized his own smallness, but most of all, his own sinfulness. That's what it did to him. And that's what an encounter with God, I was going to say as he is, but more of what he is than we normally see, does to us. It's said that Jean-Paul Sartre, the 20th century French philosopher, who used to be all the rage and is now almost entirely forgotten, but it's said that he was brought up in church circles, presumably Roman Catholic ones in France. But then later, and I think this is a quote from Sartre, he stopped associating with God. And he became what they call an icon of atheism. And he said, the last thing I want is to be subject to the unremitting gaze of a holy God. The last thing I want is to be subject to the unremitting gaze of a holy God. There's something tragic about that, but there's something actually quite rational and right about that. It is a scary thing to encounter God. But Isaiah had that experience and it undid him. And I suspect for a moment as the angel, uh, the cherubim, whatever it was, uh, took the coal off the altar and started flying towards him, he thought that this was like a kind of nuclear-tipped arrow coming his way. I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen at that point. He thought the coal represented in physical form the burning holiness of God, and he was just going to be burnt up like a leaf consumed in a candle flame. Now, there are many reasons why we may feel broken. 
while we may feel fractured. Many of us disguise it pretty well. With other people, it bubbles up to the surface a little bit more, but many of us disguise it pretty well. But underneath, to a greater or lesser extent, we're all broken people. I remember when I was, uh, was, was ill and was going to the doctor, I think, to get some more medication. And um, I think I was talking in a slightly self-pitying way about how I was. And she's a, she's a Christian. Uh, she's vicar of a church in Cambridge now. She's given up medicine. But she kind of heard my slightly sad story. And she said, Julian, we're all broken people, you know. I thought, well, most people don't get that from their GP. Uh, <laughs> But I think it's true. I think it's just a question of how much we own up to it and how much we allow that to be real. Life, the circumstances of life in a fallen world, can break and can crush us. Just our finiteness in an infinite universe can crush us. Particular situations can crush us. Every year, bright-eyed students arrive in Cambridge. And all of them have been at the top at school. And by definition, almost all of them are not going to be at the top in Cambridge. And I just think, you poor things. Because <laughs> you're going to have this experience of intellectual crushing this term or next term. Because you're not going to be at the top anymore. It's probably the same in Oxford. It certainly was when I was studying there. But the category that's more important is the one that faced Isaiah that he felt he was undone by a vision of the Lord that revealed his own sinfulness. And do you remember how he owns up to that particular area? I'm, a member, uh, I'm one of a people of unclean lips, and I have unclean lips. I am representative of the worst sins of my culture, and it's in me as well. And if the right thing happens, the coal will come from the altar and will burn me up. There's a quote from A.W. Tozer that a friend of mine uses. I, I think I will use it. it. It kind of sounds a bit brutal, but I think it's right. That's the wrong one. Let me find it. Here we are. This is my friend writing. Inevitably, if God has a purpose of grace and glory for you, you will be crushed. And he quotes Tozer. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And of course he was writing in the days when using man like that was clearly generic and inclusive. It's doubtful whether God can bless a man or woman greatly until he has hurt her or him deeply. And one pathway to blessing that we would never choose, so God chooses us for us, for us, is to suffer. Maybe the sense of our own sinfulness, maybe other things that crush us and destroy our sense of well-being in ourselves, and even our self-image, they, they crush us, they get hold of us. And whether or not life does that to us, the sense of our own sinfulness certainly should. Because like Isaiah, for each of us to be face to face with pure holiness, the height of God, the holiness of God, is to tremble. And that's an uncomfortable thing. A very uncomfortable thing. 
And the default assumption for us would be that the very best that we can hope for is that someone might, like us might have some place in the kind of outer ring of, of God's people. We're okay somewhere out in the margins. You know, if, if the Lord is here and there's a group of really good people in the church, then we're kind of somewhere over in Oxford and we occasionally get uh, a little bit of the kind of echo of his voice. <clears throat> but this is where this great saying becomes so powerful. The high and holy one says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly, in spirit. Isn't that just amazing? God dwells in two places. In the heights. And in the depths. And he doesn't dwell in between. We aspire to be upwardly mobile. God aspires to be downwardly mobile. And there's some amazing connections here that I want to try and draw out. I've already tried to draw out that uh, connection with Isaiah 6 in terms of uh, the height and the uh, uh, lifted upness of God. And the same words are used in uh, chapter 6 as in chapter 57, 15. Um, but you need to make connections also with chapter 53. And the, the verbal connections are really very interesting here. There are several. The first one I want to point out is the connection with the word broken. I live also with the one who is broken and lowly in spirit. Now that, of course, is a wonderful and amazing and surprising thing. How is it that God can come down? How is it that he can make his second home with people who are broken? Broken by life circumstances, broken by their finiteness, broken by their sin... How can a holy God come down? Here it's just announced. In Isaiah 53, so many of the lines of the things that are happening in Isaiah all come together. And the verbal connections, in many cases, make them very powerful. And they come together in the figure of the suffering servant, which, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 10? It was the Lord's will to crush him. Interestingly there, they have to translate it as crush because they couldn't translate it as make him contrite because Jesus didn't have anything to be contrite about. But it's, it's the same, it's the same uh, route. It was the Lord's will to crush him. God comes down from his high and holy place, dwelling in all eternity beyond this universe, beyond time, and comes down to us in Christ, in his incarnation itself, the most astonishing thing that absolute being should come and inhabit and actually become a human being without losing his absolute being. I can't get my head around that. I don't know if you can. It is just astounding. The incarnation alone is the most amazing piece of engineering, if you like, you could ever imagine. The most amazing being, and we could just gaze in contemplation on the incarnate God. But it doesn't stop there because he goes on to the cross and there he bears our sin and he is crushed by our sin and our suffering and by the wrath of God, which is what we deserve. And then he's raised up again. 
And again, there's a verbal echo, chapter 52 and verse 12. In fact, I mean verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That same pair of words which are used in chapter 6 for the Holy One and in chapter 57 verse, uh, 57, verse 15 for the Holy One. And it's the only time in Isaiah where those two words are put together like that. There is a pattern there. And it's speaking of the ministry of Jesus who comes down to us in Christ, who is broken for us, and then is lifted up, but by his Spirit still comes and dwells with humble and contrite people. And what does that mean? It means that he comes in great tenderness. Someone has said that Christ's ministry is the ultimate ministry of empathy because he's been crushed too. He knows what it's like to be at the bottom and to be humiliated where we are. And he comes down to us and dwells with us there. I love this um, poem which is published anonymously in the monthly record of the Free Church of Scotland in all places. I used to subscribe to that a few years ago. It's a poem about Jesus. Yesterday, in my kind of body, he stood in my pain, disfigured, torn, grotesque. Yesterday, with my kind of mind, he stood near my despair, Terrified, stunned, oppressed. Yesterday in the black hole, he knew of no one who loved him. He felt he meant nothing to God. Today, encircled by the light, his mind faces the love. His body, its maker's masterpiece. But he still remembers the day they buried his father and the goose pimples of Gethsemane. That is our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down to us physically and bodily and still comes down to us today by his Spirit, in the power of the gospel, to be our Savior and to revive the spirit of the lowly. The word lowly is, is those who've experienced humiliation, either a voluntary humiliation or a, an involuntary humiliation. One way or the other, they've been cast down and brought down and brought low. And what happens? The Lord Jesus Christ comes to such people and indwells them and comes again and again and again. Now, you may be thinking, oh, yeah, but not me. Yes, you. You may be thinking, not me, because I've got this problem and I did this. And he says, yes, I can cope with that. There's a friend of mine who's a pastor, who's a phrase he loves to use. And uh, it's this. God loves high-maintenance people. Isn't that just such a relief? I mean, gosh, I don't know about you, your leaders in churches. Doesn't your heart slightly sink at high-maintenance people? I have to be honest, mine does, and, uh, you know, not giving away any names, but it just does. And someone joins the church, you think, oh, it's going to be a high-maintenance person. And even if you're at your absolute best as a Christian leader, part of you already feels the energy streaming out of you. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ loves high-maintenance people, and he comes to us again and again and again. And he comes to us with his healing grace at precisely the points where we hurt most, where we've sinned most, the things we are most embarrassed about, the things we can't share with other people, the things that we think are stuck that way. That's presumably why the angel brought the coal and put it on Isaiah's lips, because he had unclean lips. And whatever it is for us, those areas that we are, uh, where, the, where we're most weak, where we most need help, and where we, we can't almost dare to ask anyone else for the help again and again, he will come if we let him by his spirit and bring the hope that the gospel gives. Because the, the dwelling of God with, with, with us is, is not some vague, sentimental mysticism. And it's not merely the kind of extra experience that you get in certain kinds of nature poetry or uh, that, that, that non-Christians seek to get by going to the Grand Canyon. All those things can point us to Christ, but that's not the experience. It's the experience of a living, loving person who is desperate to make us the best we can be and has done everything he can by dying for us and being raised for us and coming to us in free grace. And by his spirit, treating us like real human beings who respond and can grieve the spirit or can quench the spirit or can put up defenses against the spirit, who can start to get proud again and think that we've got something about us again and to take pride in being the leader of this group or the pastor of this church or having done this great bit of work, preach this particular sermon, seeing these numbers of people added to our church, certainly better than the other church, and we start to move ourselves away from the zone of lowliness into the kind of middle zone. And we, we think all expectantly that, that God will be with us if we're in the middle zone. And then God does something again to bring us down to that bottom zone. And then we're miserable. We think God couldn't possibly be there and this disappointing thing has happened and this difficult thing has happened and it's hard work or I've yet again blown it in this particular way and I feel really crushed by that. I feel really inadequate and I haven't got warm feelings about God or the gospel or ministry or anything like that. I feel dry or a bit angry or just that I'd rather be doing something else. And in that state of the all those different things, if I only see myself as God sees myself for a moment and then see Christ again, comes the renewal of the spirit and the revival of the heart of the contrite. And that does so much for me in ministry. It frees me up from all sorts of things that are otherwise a problem. I'm speaking generically here. These are the things I'm, I'm aspiring to. I'm not describing myself. It means it's okay for me to face my weaknesses. It means it's okay for me to welcome criticism. It's, mean, it's okay for me not to succeed all of the time. And it's okay for me to make some of the most difficult and basic discipleship moves on a regular basis. For some reason, I was asked to read a new manuscript on uh, Christian uh, marriage of Christian leaders by a guy called Anjit Fernando. You read any of his stuff? He's a great guy from Sri Lanka. And it's a great book. I hope it comes out. 
And he's got some really challenging stuff in this book. In fact, it would be good for anyone. I, I, one of the things I said about it was I didn't think it should be marketed for leaders because it would be good for all Christian marriages. But he talks about how in marriage, and I think this applies in ministry as well, one of the most important things we can do is not really so much about the marriage. It's about our discipleship. And to be asking God each day to show us the particular area where we need to crucify the self. And I, read, I thought, I'm not even so sure I've said that to God once, let alone every day. But actually, biblically speaking, that's basic Christian discipleship. Isn't it? Where does the ability to do that come from? It comes from this assurance that the person who faces up to their needs, their weaknesses, their sins, and allows those things to crush them will experience the sweetness of the grace of Christ, the embrace of Christ, the presence, the living, reviving presence of Christ. And then those discipleship things that we're running away from actually become possible. Otherwise, it's likely just to be willpower and legalism. I rather lost touch of time, so I'm going to tell one last story and then I shall finish and pray. A pastor was standing outside his church on a Sunday morning, greeting people as they went out, uh, as you do, and saw one of his congregation coming to him. And they had a little bit of chit-chat. She was a single mother uh, in practice. I mean, still married and with children, but husband who's living at home completely distant from her and really treating her at the, at the verbal, not the physical level, uh, with brutality and neglect. A kind of toxic mix. Very hard life. He'd given up on the Lord completely. Anyway, this, he, he said to her after a bit, so how, how are things spiritually... There's a lot of pain written in her face. And she said, it's been a really hard year. Really hard year. There's a lot of brokenness there. And then she added, but it's made me realise that Christ is enough. At which point the pastor started to feel a bit tearful as he told the story. But she went on. She said, yeah, on my birthday. On my birthday, I went out for a walk on my own. The husband probably didn't even recognize the birthday. I went out for a walk on my own. And I said to myself, I am so lonely. And she felt the Lord saying, don't you ever say that again. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Shall we pray? We couldn't have dreamt this, Lord. Were it not in your word, we would have doubted the person who had told it to us. 
How simply amazing that you should live in these two places, as Isaiah puts it. And one of them is us in our brokenness and our need. Grant us each, Lord, to welcome your presence and to allow you to do your reviving and renewing work so that we may serve our people well and be the kind of leaders who are real, real disciples, real children. For Jesus' sake, amen.